I'm Kari Rowe, and you're listening to the Foreign Saints Podcast, a pulse check for those who die daily. We are continuing our verse-by-verse walk through the gospel according to Matthew. I think this is episode three or something like that. I don't want to take up too much time because we have a lot to get into. We've got two somewhat tricky uh, Old Testament passages that Matthew quotes uh, in this episode uh, to say that Jesus fulfills them. Um, And we're going to learn a lot about how Matthew uses the word fulfilled, because in both of these examples today, it's not as straightforward as people would like. But I think one of the things that we're definitely going to learn this episode is that the Bible is a lot smarter than you think, and God is a lot more literarily artistic than we give him credit for. And of course, there's a lot here as well. Um, So let us dive into it. We will be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. My plan was to finish the chapter this week, but in researching and just kind of, you know, getting into the scripture, especially because of the back half, uh, we are not going to finish. We are not going to finish the chapter this time um, because I, like I said, I want the scripture to be able to say what it's got to say. And when you put your agenda on the back burner and just let the Bible speak straight, the benefits in our lives are profound. So without further ado, let's get into it. I will read the first couple of verses that we'll be tackling for this first half, and then just to load the passage into our minds, uh, which frees me up to just teach. And as I say all the time, if you've got a physical Bible or a Bible app on your phone, I would highly suggest following along. Um, And here we go. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Out of Egypt I called my son, unquote. All right, so... Let us get into it, right? Uh, Verse 13, when it says, when they had departed, um, for those that have been following along in the Matthew series, this is part three. Yeah, I do believe this is part three. Um, The they is the Magi, right? Uh, We learned last episode, the Magi, not, you know, not three kings, but a group of pagan astrologers, those who worship the stars that uh, gave up you know, that left everything for some time to, um, you know, to come see Jesus and ended up worshiping at his feet. No, we're not going to talk much about them today, but when we get further, you know, a couple chapters later into the Beatitudes, I will probably be referencing the Magi again. Um, But my emphasis for this first half is simply this, that Egypt was safer for Christ than Israel. Egypt was safer for Christ 
than Israel. And we will see, <laughs> we see why right here, right? Uh, Herod, the false king that we were talking about, right? He shouldn't even be on the throne, the throne that rightfully uh, belongs to Joseph um, by lineage of the genealogy and therefore Jesus. Um, he's not trying to, you know, Herod's not trying to give that up. Um, and God knows that. So he tells Joseph, take the family, flee to Egypt. Um, and this is where I want to mention about the gold. <laughs> you know, I didn't, uh, ex I explained the symbology of the gold. Um, but just from a practical perspective, that gold that was given by the Magi that night is going to end up really useful um, for Joseph when it comes to relocating his family to Egypt, right? And it's like I was saying in the last episode, right? Like in worshiping, we give. And when you are receiving that, right? Like for church, you know, when churches are receiving those monetary gifts, they should be pouring them back into the service of Jesus to use as God directs, not to spend on their own passions, on their own hobbies, what have you like this. This is kingdom money. Um, and the reason that is, is because, as we'll get into later on in the Gospel of Matthew, everything that you own should be used for the kingdom. Um, second thing to learn here, God keeps his people safe in hostile environments. Um, something that I would hope people that are faithful listeners to this podcast already know from uh, our constant um, listening to stories from the persecuted church around the globe. Um, you know, but God, you know, he outfoxes Herod, right? Herod is trying to use information about Jesus to kill the influence of Jesus in his life, to kill Jesus. That's what he wants. And God's one step ahead. He's the master chess player. He knows the moves ahead of time. and He's got the counters already lined up, ready to go. <clears throat> and we also see here, I know I'm just kind of going light and fast, but there's something I want to get to in Hosea later. Um, but we see here in Joseph's dream, right, the, how prophecy is used, right? Like prophecy, like the gold given by the Magi, is used in service of Jesus. Revelation chapter 19, uh, the entire spirit of prophecy, its point is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so here we see, right, prophecy from God given to Joseph, run because Herod is coming, right? That prophecy serves the testimony of Jesus by making sure Jesus doesn't uh, have his throat slit, uh, you know, before he's old enough to start preaching the gospel. And in verse 14, um, again, just got to say, you know, kudos to the instant obedience of Joseph, right? He leaves by night without a goodbye, to friends, to his family, um, while he's, you know, while they're all loaded down with the gifts from the Magi, right? Um, and leaving at night back then would have been risky because you're talking about a world with no street lamps, no Wi-Fi, and no cell towers to call out for help in case you get jumped in the road um, by bandits or something like that, right? <clears throat> and like I said, it's just Joseph, a uh very recently uh pregnant mary and you know a very young baby jesus this is a weak group that is moving and god calls them to leave in the night 
um, Joseph had his sleep interrupted with that dream from God um, to avoid destruction and death. And in that way, it kind of mirrors the gospel, right? Like we, we might have all our reasons, you know, we might want to stay and, you know, in our old lives or whatever. But when God gives that call, you follow him. You do not delay, right? Don't delay. You're only harming yourself in that. Um, you know, but for us men, right? Joseph, again, you know, showing us what it means to be a man, right? Like so far, Joseph's, uh, you know, first year of marriage is uh, is not going as he would have as, as he would have planned or wanted. Right. Thought his wife was cheating on him. Turns out there she's actually she actually is pregnant with the Messiah. And now you've got the, you know, the false king of Israel looking to wipe out baby Jesus, looking to murder uh, baby Jesus. And now God's telling you to pack up everything and leave in the middle of the night. Don't stay in the morning and say goodbye. Don't let anybody know. Just get out of Dodge. Go to Egypt. <clears throat> Definitely not in Joseph's plans, but Joseph plays the man uh, and leads his family through what is undoubtedly a difficult and confusing time. Um, and we're going to, you know, as when we finally end chapter two uh, next episode, we're going to be talking more about Joseph's leadership of his family. But for now, um, just know that's more, you know, Every act of obedience to Christ just piles on to the stigma, right? Um, definitely not easy for Joseph to explain this to his people, probably. Uh, but that brings us to the meat and potatoes of this first half, right? How is this a fulfillment of Hosea, the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. Because Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by prophet Hosea. <clears throat> and it's right here where I kind of want to mention, again, um, what does Matthew mean when he uses the word fulfill, right? You look up the Greek, uh, the word for fulfill in Greek um, in this passage is plerao. Uh, which is the verb form of the base word play race, which has three definitions. One, to make full or complete. Two, to perfect or consummate. And three, to carry into effect or bring to realization. Right? Um, and it's at this point I want to kind of bring us back to what I was talking about uh, in the first episode of this whole series, let me flip back a good couple of episodes here in my notes. Um, just again, right? What are our, what's uh, our third purpose here of reading Matthew to see the continuity of Scripture through the Old and New Testaments? And this episode is going to be big on that. But one of the things that I mentioned about that is seeing Jesus in the Bible, seeing him here, seeing him there, seeing him everywhere, seeing Jesus in the symbols, seeing Jesus in the circumstances, in the historical figures, in the stories, and in the literary styles. And it's in these last couple, right, the stories and literary styles where we will see our pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament this week. 
Um, and so, you know, as you're listening, I mean, I guess you could pause, right? You can always pause and just turn to Hosea, uh, chapter 11, verse one. Um, but something I want to mention before we get into it at times in Matthew, and I would say this and the next one concerning Rhema at times, Jesus fulfilling a prophecy is more akin to him being a thematic crescendo or just the highest subject of a poem rather than direct fulfillment, like in Isaiah 9, right? Um, A young virgin is going to have a child, right? Or Psalm 22, right? His hands and his feet will be pierced. That's pretty direct. Just this is going to happen. And then there's a bunch of other things in the Old Testament where it's really not prophecy in the sense that you're thinking. Um, But Jesus comes in and kind of fills out the themes. Um, You know, so rather than you know, go off on the scholarly definition. Um, let us turn, just bear with me here as I get my Bible, right? Because I try and have my Bible in front of me too. Um, you know, as I come backwards into the Old Testament here to Hosea, to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the full verse is this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Right? So you can see Matthew is uh, only quoting the back half of the verse here. Right? And in that sense, it is pretty literal, right? God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And God is going to call Jesus out of Egypt to start his public ministry. And so in that sense, there's, again, there's a, there's a thematic fulfillment, right? Not necessarily a direct prophecy per se, um, but in the sense that the things that happen to Israel as a nation will happen to uh, the savior individually as a person. And we'll see that theme come back, right? With Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, like the nation of Israel was tempted in the wilderness, but as we'll see, Jesus is the greater version of all of that. Um, <clears throat> and so there's things to be learned in all of that, right? But in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, we see God's love for Israel reaffirmed, right? He calls Israel his own son, references the fact that he called him out of Egypt. And if you're just reading in Hosea, that's what you're going to get, right? And I think that's what you're supposed to get. Um, If you keep reading onward in this chapter with Jesus in mind, you'll see it describes Israel in Jesus's day in addition to Israel of Hosea's day, right? Like the descriptions fit both time periods. So, um, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's look at it, right? Hopefully you've got it open, but if not, I will read in Hosea chapter 11. And again, consider Israel in Jesus's day with everything that's been going on so far in the story with Herod uh, trying to murder Jesus with the chief priests and scribes not really caring too much about what's going on, right? Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. 
and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Right? I mean, if you're looking at that, verses 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 9, like, how do you not see parallels to the ministry of Jesus in each one of those lines? Right. My favorite one is verse four. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. All right. That word that's translated kindness could also be rendered humanness. I led them with cords of humanness. And why is that? Because that word is literally in the Hebrew, Adam, Adam, right? I led them with cords of Adam. That is incredible, right? How does that, how do you not see a connection to Jesus, right? God in human form, I led them with cords of humanness. Wow. And when he says cords, right, that's, that's kind of a cultural thing because when parents were teaching their children how to walk back then, they would use a little bit of string or a little rope. You know, and the child would grab a hold of that rope and the parent would be holding the other end. And so they could kind of, you know, they could, you know, you know, pick their kid up. And if he was unsteady on his feet, he could hold the rope, um, kind of give him some independence and the ability to, you know, uh, the ability to catch himself a little bit should he stumble. And so what God is saying here is I when I was teaching Israel how to walk, I led them with cords of kindness, but not just kindness. The word is Adam, which brings to mind a humanness, right? That is Jesus, right? If you are trying to follow Jesus, right? You're reaching out to God. You're trying to walk, but you can't, right? Every time you try to stand up in God, you just can't. You can't walk after him. So what does God do? He holds out the rope and the rope is Christ. You hang on to Christ and God will lead you and you will learn how to walk after him in the ways that you are supposed to. But that's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus became when God, uh, when God emptied himself and became a servant, right? That's what he was. He became the rope, the connection between you and God that allows you to walk upright on two feet spiritually. That is amazing. That is amazing, right? But catch this, right? There's so much typology here, and I've got 10 minutes left already, right? So what I did was I wrote two summaries of Hosea chapter 11, one in which I call it close context, which is to say, if you didn't know about Jesus, if you didn't know about the New Testament, and you were just reading Hosea with the histories of Israel in mind, this, I believe, is the proper interpretation. But then after that, I'm going to read it again 
but this time with what I call in Christ context, which is reading Hosea chapter 11 in light of Christ, right? Because Jesus tells us that the entire Old Testament is about him, right? And especially portions of the Old Testament that the New Testament tells us are fulfillments, are fulfilled in Christ, right? We should definitely be able to look at more than just the part that's quoted and see, uh, you know, and see connections to Jesus. So, uh, firstly, close context for Hosea chapter 11. My summary here. From God's perspective, <laughs> when Israel was young and enslaved to Egypt, I called them and brought them out of there. In time, my son Israel persisted in living his own way and worshiping the false gods, the Baals, and harvesting death as a result. I healed them in ways that they didn't see and in ways that they couldn't see. In love and kindness, I taught them how to walk as a parent does to their child. I eased their yokes and condescended to feed and serve them. War will destroy their cities because of their own decisions. It reveals that though they call to me, they are actually determined to turn away, and I cannot bring blessing and life to that. That being said, how can I give up on you as if you weren't mine? Though properly angry with you, I have compassion too. I will not show my full anger against you. Because I am God and not a man, I can forgive what man could never forgive. I can work for reconciliation with people every man would give up on because I am the Holy One and no other. I think if you're reading Hosea chapter 11 in context of the Old Testament, without knowledge of Jesus, without the New Testament in mind, I do think that's what you're supposed to take away from this, because that is pretty much what Hosea is saying, right? But when you look at it in context of Christ's life, and especially this specific portion of Christ's life, right? Just before Herod goes out and murders all those little, all those little children, Right, because he's trying to silence the voice of God in Christ. <clears throat> and then you come back to Hosea chapter 11. As Matthew no doubt did as he was brainstorming how to write his gospel, he was definitely meditating on Hosea chapter 11 and thinking of it in light of the life of Christ. And I think this is how Jesus enhances Hosea 11 and brings it to its fullest uh, thematic fulfillment in him. So, Hosea chapter 11, in the context of Jesus Christ. When Israel was young and enslaved to Egypt, I called them and brought them out of there. In time, my son Israel persisted in living his own way and worshiping the false gods, the Baals, and harvesting death as a result. I healed them in ways that they didn't see and in ways that they couldn't see. In love and kindness, I taught them how to walk as a parent does to their child. I eased their yokes and condescended to feed and serve them. I sent prophet after prophet in countless droves. Some remembered, most not. The more they were called, the more they went away. The more prophets I sent, the more were tortured and murdered in cold blood as they served idols, spiritual and political. My son Israel hates me now. But I recall calling him from Egypt all those years ago and leading him by the cord of kindness to teach him to walk. I am committed to feeding and serving him even now. 
Just as I sent manna, bread from heaven, when they were starving in Egypt, I sent my son, the bread of heaven, to feed them when they were starving in sin. To highlight and make it obvious, I made sure he was born in the town of Bethlehem, as I foretold, the town whose name means house of bread. And he was laid in a manger, a.k.a. a feeding trough. I laid the bread of heaven in a feeding trough in a town named House of Bread. I made it painfully obvious, but tragically my people are committed to turning away. So Herod tried to murder my son, and in so doing murdered many of his own citizens. Hosea 11 verse 6 is true. The sword rages against their cities and devours them because of their own counsels. Israel was so evil and hostile, I had my son hide away in Egypt, like Moses finding safety in Pharaoh's house, because the false king Herod has become like Pharaoh, but worse, as Herod also murdered little ones in defiance of God. I can't raise my people up at all if they keep turning away from me, but I can't give up on them, because Israel is mine. Instead of judging Israel for attempted murder of the promised king and all their other sins, I will instead call my son out of Egypt, back to Israel, to forgive what man could never forgive, and rescue what no man can. He'll be able to do this because he is not just a regular man, rather, he is Emmanuel, God with us, the Holy One in your midst, and he will not come in wrath. That... I do believe, is what Matthew has in mind when he says that this was fulfilled in the life of Christ, right? And I think that there's, you know, a lot, just a a lot of application there for us, right? Like, if you want to walk upright in this world, if you want to walk in righteousness and holiness, if you want to walk in life, you have to cling to God, Right? The same way a little child clings to the cord of kindness that a parent would use to help their child walk, we too hold on to the rope of Christ and we don't let go because we know that God is on the other end of that rope. Right, More than that, that God is in the rope. Right, I mean, Jesus even heightens that metaphor. Right, The parent is not in the rope, but God is in Jesus. Right, Jesus is God in human form. And if we would just hang on to him, he will lead us true. He will lead us true. And I do believe that if we were to recapture that, that if we were to get back to just holding on to Jesus as the rope of life, right, that we would be able to recapture our foreign identity as Christians in this world, that we wouldn't just look like the world with a, you know, with a sticker of Jesus on our foreheads, but that we would truthfully walk different, that we would truthfully talk different on our jobs, uh, in our families, right? That we would truly work different, that it would affect every aspect of our lives, that we would go through this life with eyes to see what God wants us to be seeing in this world, with hands and feet ready to be the instrument of God in this world, right? Because if God's people are not doing the things of God in this world, then the world sees God less. Because the fact remains, man, spirits need bodies, right? That's what we are, the body of Christ in this world, right? So if his body isn't 
doing what he wants it to do, then the world is not seeing a clear picture of Jesus, no matter what we tell ourselves in the privacy and comforts of our own heads of our own minds, right? The mercy of God is so amazing, right? Even though, even though, even though the king tries to murder Jesus right out the gate, right? Revelation 12 verses 1 to 6, right? It speaks of the dragon, aka Satan, standing uh, mouth wide open before the woman who's about to give birth to the promised child who's going to reign, right? And God just catches him up to the throne, right? I mean, Satan was working in this. I do believe that the first six verses of Revelation chapter 12 are speaking of this moment in Matthew, the murder of the innocent, because Satan would have loved to just devour Jesus right here and prevent the rest of the story from playing out. But God, as they say, and that is the good news of the gospel to us, right? But God. God didn't let Satan have his way. God didn't let Herod have his way. Why? Because he was trying to reach the rope out to you. He was trying to extend the rope of life, the rope of Christ to you. So take hold. Take hold and follow him. All right? And uh, entering the last minute here, so um, we're going to get into our intermission, our meditations uh, for this episode, and then we will continue on the back half um with Rama and Jeremiah. So enjoy the intermission and we will be right back with the show. God is moving in Nepal. A Hindu couple living near Nepal's border with India came to faith in Jesus Christ after a neighbor shared the gospel with them. As Dalits in Nepal's caste system, they were already at the bottom of society, and becoming Christians only intensified their rejection. Even other Dalits spurned them, forbidding them from using the community water well. So when their brothers and sisters from the global body of Christ provided them with their own well, they put it to good use. Aruna, the wife, shares what she hears in church each week with those who come to pump water from the well, and 15 people have come to know Christ through her weakness. Hebrews 13 verse 3, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Alright, don't let the stigma of Christ uh, prevent you from following Christ. Bear in your body, bear in your social standing the marks, the stigma of following Jesus. And you watch what your God will do. Just like in her case, right? Her being able, her being willing to bear the shame led to 15 others coming to know Jesus. What can Jesus do through you being willing to bear the stigma of Christ? Let's see. Watch what your God will do. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 22 down to 26. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice, give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? 
When he's leveled its surface, doesn't he scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose, and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Right? God does not destroy things without intention to rebuild. Alright, and it's the same thing in our lives, right? One of the prayers I have prayed for people often is, God, get them. God, go after them. God, tear them down quickly in hopes that they come to repentance because of that, because that's God's goal, right? He's not a farmer that just takes his equipment and just constantly digs at the ground. He's not trying to destroy you. He's not trying to just cut into you all the time. He wants to plant Jesus in you. He wants to see fruit of Christ come to bear in your soul. So don't scoff and let those bonds of sin grab hold of you all the tighter. Repent and come into life follow Christ, obey the gospel. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hope you enjoyed the intermission. I always love making them. Um, Though, fun fact, I don't actually record. The intermissions are the last thing I record. So even though you guys heard them just now, I don't actually know... (laughs) Uh, what the intermission is that I decided to go with until, uh, you know, after I get done recording this. Um, but yeah, we are continuing. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse uh, 15 and move through um, to 18. Should be able to not go at such a breakneck speed um, this particular side of the episode. Hopefully, uh, the first half wasn't too much of a whirlwind for you. I admit it may have been drinking may have been like drinking from a fire hose, but you know, I'm just trying to cram so much in here sometimes. Um, and even with what I am giving you, there's a lot that I am still leaving on the cutting room floor, uh, so to speak, but that's okay. You know, gives you a, you know, gives you some motivation to get into the text, uh, for yourself. Right. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's keep going. Uh, picking up in verse, oh, I said 15, sorry. In verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, by the Magi, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, quote, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And like I said, I wanted to finish the episode out, but as you will see, uh, there is so much packed into this little statement here. And honestly, I just want to let it breathe. This was a really sobering uh, meditation for me. Really encouraging, you know, really encouraging uh, as well. Um, And definitely one of the more, if you want to call it, pro-woman places in the Bible, you know, just for the culture that we're in, you can twist people's minds up and, you know, and tell them stuff like that, right? Um, But my theme, my point for this second half here is the title of the episode, Judgment Creates Repentance, So Hope, all right? Judgment Creates Repentance, 
so hope. And I already know that some of y'all listening to this right now are gonna, y'all are gonna need to hear this because this is the sort of word that's gonna keep you going um, in what God has called you in, right? Because holding on to the rope of Christ, as I was talking about in the first episode, is not easy. All right. It is not easy to stay focused on Jesus in a simple childlike way and keep him the main thing. It's so easy to let go of the rope and chase after our own idols and chase after what we want and do life our own way. And that's where this second half, I think, comes in and really speaks, um, you know, really speaks to our soul. So let us let it speak. Right. I don't excuse me, by the way, I'm preaching uh, with, uh, you know, preaching and teaching here with the remnants of a sore throat. Uh, we have had a, we have had quite a lot of, uh, quite a lot of respiratory cases at the, you know, at the big hospital in Charlotte. So, you know, sometimes you, uh, sometimes you catch a little bit of what you treat. So. Um, but yeah, Herod murders all the boys in the Bethlehem region, aged two and under. As I talked about earlier this episode and in the previous episode, he's using information about Jesus to kill the influence of Jesus. That is, by definition, demonic. Um, and as I said, Revelation uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, uh, may have this event in mind. Um, let me see if I can get there pretty quick i should i mean you know it's the the last book in the bibles you know just turn to the end hey maybe one of these days uh maybe one of these days if uh you know if the if the listen count uh goes up uh, maybe we'll do a verse by verse walk through the revelation it would be interesting um you know but you see here in these six verses here uh i mean i guess verse four is really where it's at Excuse me, the dragon stood before the woman, and later on, a couple verses later, it straight up tells us the dragon is that old serpent, the devil. All right, so the dragon, the devil, stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. I do think that. I do think that the murder of the innocents recorded in Matthew's gospel is at least in view in that passage. Um, you know, like I said, it says that the dragon swept a third of the stars of heaven with him. Stars in Revelation chapter one, Jesus up tells us our angels, um, you know, and Jesus couldn't seem to go a block or two without encountering somebody who was demon possessed. So, you know, I do think that the verse, a uh, couple of verses in Revelation chapter 12 are almost the spiritual behind the scenes of what was going on here in Matthew chapter 2, uh, which is really neat. Uh, interesting. Uh, very interesting to me. I'm uh, just throwing that out there for people that like that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> and also, um, I've got this big anthology from this Roman, this Jewish Roman historian called Josephus. And so I was reading a little bit on what he wrote of John the Baptist for next episode and a little bit of Herod for this. And Herod was a messed up dude, man. Um, He was definitely the kind of person to do this for any of those that doubt, right? Um, This is a guy who approaching his deathbed 
um, goes into Jericho, right? Remember, he's the king of Israel, false king, but, you know, he sits in a chair. So, you know, he goes into Israel or goes into Jericho and grabs a bunch of the, you know, high ranking people, locks them inside of one of the Colosseums and says, when I die of my illness, kill all of them. So that way there is an excess of grieving and lamentation on the day of my death. Cause I don't want people to be feeling happy on the day that I die. That's the sort of, that's the sort of guy that Herod is. So, you know, murdering a handful of children is definitely, uh, definitely up his alley. Um, this is a guy that's murdered like his own brothers, his own kid. Like he's, he's a messed up dude. Um, so he was definitely the sort of person to do this. <clears throat> Which becomes important as we get into uh, our prophecy, right? Uh, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Um, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And I think this is one of those passages that really starts to trip people up because people will come to this passage and they'll be like, see, Matthew doesn't understand the Old Testament because that passage in Jeremiah isn't like a prophecy. And yeah, you're right. It's not. But if you actually read not just that section, but the rest of you know, the rest of that section that's connected to it in Jeremiah 31, you do start to see thematic connections to Jesus, right? Um, because as I said at the top of the episode, God is more literarily artistic than you ever appreciate. All right. When you go to an art museum, you don't, I mean, if you're really trying to enjoy the art museum anyway, you don't just look at a painting for 10 to 20 seconds and then walk off, right? You stand in front of the painting, you admire it, you soak it all in. And then after you take in the big picture, you look at the minute details, right? You look at the intricacy of the brushstrokes. You look at how he's using, you know, like the, you know, like the oil paints and balancing the colors and all sorts of stuff. Like, like that's what it means to examine art. And I know we don't oftentimes think of the Bible as art, but it is. Right. He's trying like God wants to introduce us to the person of Jesus Christ. He wants us to meet him and be saved. And he is beautiful. Right. So if you're going to write a book about him, if he's going to write a book about himself, it's literarily going to be brilliant. Right. <clears throat> if all God wanted to say was John 316, then all the Bible just would have been John 316. But even more than that. Right. Prose alone doesn't capture all that there is to human experience and doesn't speak to humans at the deepest level. But poetry, poetry does. Songs, songs do, right? This is why you have these other genres in the Bible, because God understands that he understands how he made us, right? Maybe you know, a prose section, you know, just a section of straight prose in Second Samuel, you know, maybe that's not it for some people. They're going to need a Psalm 23 kind of poem. And they're going to need a Philippians 2 kind of poem, right? And I think all of this together helps us have a much deeper, much richer understanding of who Jesus is. But it does require that you look at your Bible for more than 10 to 20 seconds. And it does require that you assume 
that you don't assume that the gospel writers and the biblical authors are all idiots and goat herders that couldn't possibly understand high level poetry. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know how arrogant you think you are <laughs> as to think that it was only until your generation or slightly before where people got smart. All right. But there were plenty of like, <clears throat> I don't know. It's just, it's, it's chronological snobbery is what it is. And, you know, people come to the Bible with the assumption that it's a patchwork quilt of unrelated texts. And so they find exactly what they see. They don't see how the passages are related. But, you know, that's part of what we do here, right? That's part of our pulse check, right? Is appreciating the fullness of your Bible. Um, it's coming to the realization that maybe Matthew understands the Old Testament better than you do, realizing that maybe, maybe you sitting with just the verse of the day for five to ten minutes a day is not enough and was never intended by God to be enough to carry you in your journey of holding on to the rope of Christ, right? So let, let's, you know, let's do some adult work with our Bible, right? And let us be edified and ministered to, all right? Rama. Well, actually, let's start with Rachel. <clears throat> Rachel, for those in the know, she is the mother of Benjamin and Joseph in the book of Genesis. Go check out her story, right? But I didn't know this until recently. Rama is where Rachel is buried, right? I didn't even know this till doing deeper research for this episode. Rachel is buried in Rama, right? So that kind of gives us some explanation for the first uh, couple of lines, which is what clued me into, oh, I'm reading poetry. A voice was heard in Rama, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. All right, this is a poetic image. This is a poem of lament. And who knows, maybe one of these one of these episodes, Meredith and I will have a whole have a whole episode on laments and holy anguish. I think that'll be a good conversation. But this poem is a poem of lament where Rachel is poetically pictured weeping from her burial site as she sees her descendants, her children, right? Israel or her descendants carried away in judgment by Babylon. Right, because that's the context in Jeremiah, right? That Israel's being carried away into captivity by Babylon, right? They have blatantly broken uh, the commands laid out in the law of Moses, right? The Deuteronomic code laid out by Moses live this way, find blessing, go this way, find all sorts of curses. And the final curse is captivity, slavery um, to a foreign nation. Right. And so Israel persisted in a sinful lifestyle, blatantly sinful lifestyle. Go read Jeremiah to see how bad it got. Um, and so God finally, after centuries of waiting, literal centuries of waiting, God executes judgment finally. And the children of Israel are carried away into judgment. And this poem of lament is, like I said, it's, it's using Rachel um, poetically weeping, uh, weeping from her burial site, right? This is such a dark day that you can even hear uh, from Ramah, the descend, uh, you know, the patriarchs and the matriarchs of Israel weeping for what their descendants have done. Um, like I said, Rachel in this poem of lament is not pictured as being angry with God for judging their sin, right? 
I mean, us today, we, we cringe at the idea of God judging sin. Um, and I think the reason for that is because our culture is just exceedingly sinful. So like the idea of God judging sin uh, gives us the ick, right? Um, and I've oftentimes said before, I've often said, you know, uh, kind of picked this up from Mike Winger, but I like it. Um, there's only two, like when you see God judging sin in the Old Testament, there's only two responses that people ever have, right? There's only two responses to have, right? When you see God judge sin, you're either going to say, <clears throat> wow, God's judging that sin. God's bringing judgment and destruction because of that sin. That sin must be really bad if God's going to these lengths uh, to punish it and remove it from society and all this stuff. This thing must be really bad. You can think that or you can think, wow, God's judging that sin. God must be really bad because that thing's really not that bad, right? Those are the only, those are the only two viewpoints, right? Wow. God uh, judges divorce. God doesn't like divorce. Wow. Divorce must be really bad versus really God's not okay with divorce. God must be messed up, right? Uh, God judges, uh, I mean, homosexuality, right? God judges homosexuality. Wow, homosexual lifestyle, that must be really bad. Versus, wow, God doesn't like homosexuality. God must be really messed up. God judges theft. Wow, theft must be really bad. Versus, you know, theft isn't that bad. God must be really messed up. And you can play this game right down the list of sins, right? Bring anything, right? Alcoholism, right? Wow, God judges alcoholism. Alcoholism must be bad. Versus, well, I don't see a problem with getting lights out, drunk, and blasted. You know, God, you're the problem, right? Those are the only two ways to view it. And Rachel in this lament poem is not angry with God for judging the sin of her children. Her children, by the way, right? This is the poem, right? This is the imagery, right? This Holy Spirit-inspired poetry through uh, Jeremiah, right? <clears throat> She's not pictured as being angry with God for judging her children, for judging her descendants, which is big, right? A lot of us would be, right? We like God. We like the idea of God as savior, but we don't like to consider the fact that he is, he is saving us from judgment, right? From judgment of sin. <clears throat> Rachel poetically, you know, poetically, Rachel is lamenting that her children lived in a way that was worthy of judgment. Right, it's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Only one of them actually brings forth repentance. Right, <clears throat> and you know the judgment of God is just. The judgment of God is just. They, like I said, they deserved it. If you knew what they were up to back then, you know, like I said they was they was getting in a child sacrifice. They was getting all sorts of stuff, you know. And God steps in finally and says, no more, no more, especially no more out of my people. Right. <clears throat> and, you know, it's like it's it's a sad day. Right. You know, there were a lot of Jews that were thinking, wow, it's over. It's over. Right. Like the promise to Abraham is scuttled. The promise to David is is done. Right. Like the promised king isn't coming anymore. You can read Jewish. Uh, you can read Jewish commentaries and stuff from that time and after where they literally thought wow like the savior of the world isn't coming because we messed up that bad we messed up that bad and now and now we're, we're done god's done with us was 
a prevailing thought process in that time because, you know, you can let punishment kind of blind you. You can let the severity of punishment blind you to what it's trying to tell you, which is repent. You don't have to go through this. Um, but again, like I said, uh, she's lamenting that her children lived in a way worthy of judgment, right? Their judgment was earned, right? Their deaths, though tragic, were just, right? God executing justice in this world, right? What happened in Jesus's day with the murder of the innocents is more tragic, right? Because thematically, it's kind of a flip, right? <clears throat> in Jeremiah's day, they died and suffered and were carried off into judgment because of what they did, right? Tragic as it is, they did deserve it. But in Jesus Christ's day, these deaths, the deaths of these two and under children are, is more tragic because these children only died because Herod was rejecting an opportunity to avoid judgment, right? In Jeremiah's day, they die because judgment came because they earned it. In Jesus Christ's day, those children did not have to die. Had Herod bent the knee to the true king of Israel, had Herod bent the knee like the Magi did, Right, the Magi were his example. Right, had he simply worshipped the Christ and fell down before him in repentance, none of those kids in Bethlehem would have died. Right, God was extending an olive branch, God was extending the opportunity to repent. And Herod decides, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that, God. Not only am I not going to repent, I'm going to try to murder you. And <laughs> The sad, the sad response from God from that is, look, you couldn't hurt me if you tried, all right? You couldn't hurt me if you tried, right? Hands tied behind my back, wrapped up in a suit of humanity, emptied of, uh, you know, empty, having emptied myself and taking on the form of a servant and cloaked in a little baby. You can't touch me. You can't touch me if I don't allow it. <clears throat> Right. But what is going to happen if you try to hurt me is you're only going to hurt yourself and you're only going to hurt those that are in your care. Right. Those children died because of Herod's sin. It wasn't God's fault. It's Herod's fault. Had Herod done what he was supposed to and repented, those children would have lived. And there is so much to be said for that in today's world. Right. How much suffering exists in this world simply because people don't bend the knee to Jesus and grab onto the rope and follow God. How much suffering exists in the world because of that, right? Like I said, knew a lady at, you know, <clears throat> know a lady at work, you know, somewhat older lady, right? Messing around with some young kid, uh, you know, you know, cougar tactics, right? Messing around with some young kid that she met at the gym, you know, uh, you know, gets pregnant, but because of her age, uh, you know, like she loses the baby, has a, you know, has a, has a TIA episode, you know, you know, a little, little mini temporary stroke. And, you know, it's like, you know, and the question coming off her lips during this whole thing is like, God, why me? Why is this happening to me? And I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't say it cause I didn't feel like it would be received well. Um, you know, so I held my tongue, but I'm just looking, I'm like, you don't want to look in the mirror like at all. 
at all. You know what I mean? Like you're someone that claims Christ and yet you decided to sin. You decided to let go of the rope in the sense of I'm going to do my own thing. I know the path that you're trying to pull me down, God, is one of, you know, sexual ethics, right? Is you're trying to pull me down a path that doesn't lead to sexual immorality and sleeping around with, you know, with younger guys um, just because I want some. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then you bring harm to yourself and not just harm to yourself, but the unnecessary death of a child, right? All this pain, all this suffering, all this death, because as a downstream effect of choosing not to follow Christ. And yet it's the one thing we never consider, you know, God, why did you do this to me? Oh, this, that, and the third. And God's like, you're the one that decided to fight back against me. <clears throat> you're only going to hurt yourself and those that you're supposed to be leading as a result, right? <clears throat> right? Like as, as, as a dad, if I choose not to follow Jesus, that's going to create some very real consequences for my family, right? I mean, this is, this is the real world where the real actions we take have real consequences, good or bad for each other, right? <clears throat> you decide to do good, you decide to live after love, and people will receive the overflow benefit of that, though they didn't earn it. You decide to do evil and live for yourself, people in your life are going to feel the overflow of that too, even though they didn't deserve it, right? This is a thematic fulfillment in Christ. You see the parallels with a little bit of a flip, right? With a little bit of a flip. And poetically in the poem, right? Rachel refused to be comforted because they were no more, right? <clears throat> and, you know, like I said, this is, you know, this poem in such a short time too, uh, brings to us the heaviness of God's judgment, brings to us the heaviness of man's sin, Right. And it, you know, it's kind of leaves us in a really tough place, a really tough place of, wow, like, I guess this is it. But remember the, but God, right? God in Jeremiah insists on comforting with a promise. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, you get the section that Matthew quoted. But if you push past and if you keep reading, as I think Matthew intends for you to do, he intends for you to look these things up and read the full chapter and see the fullest fulfillment in Christ, right? Um, what you get in verse 16, thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. You did a lot of planting for the kingdom and it won't go to waste, Rachel. All right? Because I'm here. So keep your eyes from so keep your eyes from tears. There is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And Rachel could say where is the hope? They sinned, right? They sinned and they've been carried off into judgment. They're dead. They're gone. But what does God say? He continues and he says, I've heard Ephraim grieving, right? I have heard them grieving. 
Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. You read those verses and you see God insists on comforting Rachel. They shall come back. The children will return. Why? God says, because I have heard Ephraim grieving, repentance is happening from judgment, so God will gladly give life. And this is an amazing thing to hear, right? <clears throat> Though Rachel refused to be comforted, right? She refused to be comforted because she was focused on the death in sin, right? She laid the foundation. She showed him how to walk. And they decided to turn away from that. And she, like any mom, like any parent, is thinking it's over. And God refuses her refusal to be comforted and says, I insist on comforting you with truth and hope anyway. I'm going to give you a promise. They're coming back. And how can you say that? Because they're weeping. They are repentant, right? This is an amazing poem because it starts, off, it starts out with a sound is heard in Ramah. And what is that sound, right? Rachel weeping for her children. A sound is heard from a place of death. Rachel weeping for her children her, who have also gone off to a place of death into Babylon, which metaphorically is a tomb, right? Like going off into judgment in that way is, is, is metaphorically death, is metaphorically worse than death. It's the wrath of God, right? But what does God say, right? They've heard a voice from Ramah, right? you weeping. But what I hear is a voice from a different graveyard. I hear a voice of repentance coming out of the death of judgment. And because of that, life is on the way. And that's what you need to remember, all right? If you're going through a season of judgment, if you're going through a season of God disciplining you, you need to know what it's for. God is trying to break you and bring you to repentance. So repent so that God can bring you out of that and give you life right? <clears throat> Human sin is worse than anyone ever appreciates, but God's judgment is more loving than you probably feel right now, right? And you need to hear this, right? You need to hear this, man, that God, instead of judging Israel for the attempted murder the Messiah would rather forgive him, right? So I just want you to know as we come to the end of our episode, right, the Old Testament is more important to the gospel than you ever gave credit for. God in the Old Testament is more compassionate, more kind, more willing to save than you were ever told or ever believe. Matthew's gospel is the story of how that God, the Old Testament God in Christ, is fighting to revive Rachel's children so that her weeping from Ramah would be heard no more. And he wants to do the same thing in your life. He wants to birth repentance in you so that you grab hold of Jesus and so that your weeping and the penalty of your sin would be no more. Step into life. Be a foreign saint. Be a follower of Jesus. And for those that are, know that your work is not in vain and your reward is coming, all right? Those that didn't listen to you might just listen soon, all right? So keep going and serve the King this week, y'all. Peace.